Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. One of the other joys and pleasures of doing my job, or oh, I think I should stop calling it a job and calling it what it is, which is a vocation, because it consumes just about every aspect of my life. One of the joys of doing this is meeting, meeting people and having the privilege to be a little bit intimidated by how smart people are. You read their work and you just go, I didn't know that existed or that's a great way of looking at this topic. Jared Kobeck has written a sublime work which is entitled Only Americans Burn in Hell, which is a commentary on Trump's America, modern America, liberal America, everything boiled up into the stew that is 2019. I had the opportunity to speak to him and I was scared and I needn't have been because even though he hates everybody and questions everything, he's actually a very lovely and engaging bloke. Here's our chat. The first five minutes is always this comedy of errors in which you're trying to trying to yeah. figure out. So you know, it's it, so so it's de rigueur for you, de rigueur. But yeah. I, I, I like to see myself as some uh, professional uh, man of podcasting, and uh, a fundamental <laughs> uh, <laughs> mistake as uh, to giving somebody an expired link. Uh, it shouldn't be in my repertoire, so I've been doing this for seven years. But Lee, you put me somewhat at my ease. Uh, we should be the other way around because uh, you, you're on my show, right? right. I you, you should be you should be nervous. But tell me about living in uh, living in London in Little Venice. Uh, oh, I was um, because when... I have a Paddington story as well, actually. Oh well, I wasn't living there. I um, staying it's there. A, it, it's a very peculiar story. Um, mm. When. I Hate the Internet came out in the UK. I was already going to be in Europe. So I asked this friend of mine who has family in London if uh, he had anywhere I could stay. Um, Mm -hmm. And what makes it peculiar is that (laughs) this is this friend of mine who's, we've been very close friends since I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And he always knew that he was adopted. And he eventually went and figured out whose biological parents are. And it turned out that his biological father was like a very posh city boy. 
mm-hmm. who just had quite a bit of money. So it was like, there's a, and a lot of times when people find their adoptive parents, it can be tense or unhappy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Th- this guy like lucked into some version of the princess <laughs> diaries. <laughs> and so it was his father's ex-wife's house and mm-hmm. she was nice enough to let me stay in their son's um, childhood bedroom. And while I was there, they were filming Paddington 2 down on the street, which is actually really weird because it's strange to see a film where the central character is in absence when yeah. it's being filmed because it's entirely crap CGI. I think that's harsh. I think it's CGI. <laughs> I wouldn't call it crap CGI. I, I, haven't, it, I haven't seen it, to be fair. I, I, I haven't seen Paddington 2 either. Though I saw Paddington 1. And uh, and I thought it a thoroughly enchanting movie. Like, I went with zero expectations. Because mm-hmm. I didn't read the books as a kid. Right. Um, so I'm just like, yeah, whatever. In the UK, Paddington in the 1970s was a was a cartoon which lasted for five minutes. It was the end of kids' TV on the BBC. Hmm. So I think it came on at, let's say, about half five before the 5.30 news, something like that. And it had this really peculiar animation style where Paddington was stop motion, but everybody else was, was hand-drawn. <laughs> I think I've and, seen this, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah. Totally, it's totally a British classic. You know, yeah. Brits of a certain age, round about my age, and I'm 50, you know, like Paddington, like you remember that cartoon. Anyway, here's my Paddington story. So I had this house in Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. Up until, funny enough, just three months ago, I just sold it. And I've been in America off and on for, for five years. So I w- I've been airbnb out my place. Mm-hmm. I get this email from, from Airbnb about three years ago. Do you like Paddington Bear? I emailed back. <laughs> what kind of nonsense question is that? I'm a, I'm a grown man. Right. <laughs> so when the, the woman emailed me back, she says, oh, because we're doing a promotion uh, because the, the new Paddington film's coming out. And Paddington, I don't know if you know Paddington Bear, but Paddington Bear is set in Paddington Ford slash Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. And the family, the Browns, live just off Portobello Road in the books. You are the closest Brown that we have who's an Airbnb host to Portobello Road. So we would like you to offer up your home to some Peruvian travellers free of charge but of course airbnb will pay you and we're going to put you in the press i said i love paddington bear bring this on <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can actually to this day google me and this image of me with a paddington bear duffel coat comes up with me holding paddington bears and my flat festooned with paddington memorabilia it's, it's utterly nonsense but I got into the Derset, the Daily Mail, the, the worst of all British newspapers. Um, who, who have always reviewed me very kindly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. All, all, all three books that Serpent's Tale has published, the mm-hmm. Daily Mail has given glowing reviews. Which Even, even the book that was uh, financed by Nazi money. Yeah. 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 So why, why, why do you think the Daily Mail have been so kind to you? 
I have no idea. I mean, it, it's one of those things which I probably shouldn't talk about because now they'll. If anyone hears this, probably if they're if I ever write any books again, they'll probably trash it. But uh-huh. it's a very strange thing because you know the Daily Mail has such a association well with what it is, right? And then mm-hmm. then you get emails from publicity people being like, they called your book a tour de force. <laughs> is that and it's and it's like well given where it's coming from is that good i don't know they have been very kind to me so and you apparently well listen <laughs> they were kind to me in error you know yeah. they, 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 were, they were given false information by the pr company working on behalf of airbnb <laughs> So talking about being kind, it's kind of an interesting way of kind of like maybe coming on to the, the topic of talking about your book. Because you take swipes at everybody, don't you? Everybody yeah. and everything. Yeah. So so, yeah. You, so if you, whether it's Donald Trump, which I think most people, most right-minded people think, well, you should take swipes at. Or even the institution of heterosexual sex takes a kick mm-hmm. from you. Right? Yeah. So, you know, you're an equal opportunities hater, so to speak. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you take applause? Badly. Really badly. I'm, I'm incredibly suspicious mm-hmm. of, I, I mean, first of all, I don't actually read reviews um, of, of my work. I, when it gets recu- reviewed in the UK, there's someone at Serpent's Tale who sends me like the pull quotes and mm-hmm. I've asked them not to, but they do. I, I'm really suspicious of it. I'm incredibly suspicious of when people like my work, which I think is difficult position to put oneself in because the so, reward. So, so this is the, your, your whole thing about somebody be, being honest. Cause nobody wants honesty. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, see, here's the thing. I think people actually do want honesty. And I would say as as a caveat on that, mm-hmm. you should always probably be suspicious of anyone like myself in the marketing around this book of who says they're honest. Because it's like the person with the biggest ego is the man who tells you he's egoless, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. The rewards of writing are so few. Uh, unless you're very lucky, and on occasion I have been very lucky, mm-hmm. that you probably should revel in the applause because there's not much else that you're going to get out of it. I find it suspicious. I, I mean, that that's the truth of it. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's really true about the book is mm-hmm. like, I give everyone a ton of shit, but <laughs> I give myself a ton of shit. You know, like that mm-hmm. is not a book that is... You know, it's certainly motivated by a kind of authorial self-obsession, but I don't think it's a positive one. I am very suspicious of myself more than anything in that book. So we have to ask the standard kind of author question. So um, how did you come up with this title and and what were you trying to say at the start? The, at the st- uh, what do you mean by the start? I'm sorry. At, the, at the start of the process, sorry, I, I wasn't clear. At the start of the process, when you said, "Right, I've got this third book. 
within me. To, I need to get this out. What were you trying to say, which is maybe different from uh, book one? Uh, yeah. The, well, the, I, I'll, I'll answer the first thing. Uh, the title was after an enormous amount of rejected titles. Um, I think Re- rejected by you or by your by uh, me publisher. and by Serpent's Tale. Um, mm-hmm. And their their instinct was right. Excuse me on the ones that they rejected, but it was a it was a hard book to title because the book is about so many different things. Whereas, like with I Hate the Internet, I mean that title took time to get to too. But if what what is that book fundamentally about? That book is fundamentally about hating the internet, right? Or the, this deep suspicion of the internet. Mm-hmm. Only Americans Burn in Hell is about the chaos that has descended on American life following mm-hmm. the election of Trump. Um, and the experience of just sort of being trapped in this historical moment, even though it's not history yet, but in 10 years, this will be a historical moment of when the country went completely insane. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that we're in this moment and basically to use a line, uh, from, from your book, he says, you know, we're losing our, our shit, right? America is kind of losing its shit. Yeah. But but it's only 50% of America, isn't it? You know? Oh, but I disagree. So I think... So those Trump-supporting people in those red states, and, yeah. and let's pile on all the stereotypes in small-town America who have got their jobs back working in coal, um, <laughs> <laughs> are, are the, they think America is great again now. Don't they? This is only well that you. I mean, you can friends who are running around with their hair on fire. Well, I would say you can think something and still be wrong, and mm-hmm. still be crazy in your your certitude. You know, like I think the fundamental thing that happened with Trump's victory. I mean, the liberal freakout was much more visible, right? And it was visible for reasons both quite justified and then reasons that I think revealed unexamined truths about what it meant to be a liberal in 2019. The Trump supporters were like Trump, which is, I don't think any of them thought it was going to happen, right? Like it seemed too weird, too strange. Some of them did, obviously, but once they actually had their impossible victory, I don't think they knew what to do with it. And I think you can see there's just been this, what the hell is it? It's almost three years now, right? Mm-hmm. This three-year cycle of madness of people who cannot accept that they won and in winning really don't know what to do with it. So they just keep making everything worse. That to me doesn't seem like victory, right? That to me doesn't seem like people who are stable, that to me seems like, I mean, even if you just think about the rhetoric of it, those people really won in 2016 and instantly just were talking about how much they had lost. You know, like the rhetoric was like, well, the, the media is against us, all of this stuff. And the thing, the enemies they kept finding to demonstrate, you know, how they were, they were, they were still on the back foot were 
totally powerless compared to what had actually happened in the scope of it, both houses of Congress and the presidency with a completely improbable candidate. That's total victory. What did they do with it? They got upset about, I don't know, Black Panther, right? Like they, like that, that was, that was, you know, like I really think Trump's victory mm-hmm. represented some kind of profound existential shock that resonated differently, but across almost every spectrum of American life. Um, and I don't think, I don't think it's had a good effect on anyone. So we've had this existential shock to American life and to world life. Um, Yeah. That's the magnitude of this. And you decided to put pen to paper. Um, Describe how exactly you've gone about creating this hyper-real book. Because one of the the interesting things you say in in your introduction is that, and I'm I'm not going to say that I'd heard of the philosopher. I'm not going to kid you. Because uh, yeah. it would just be two minutes worth of Google, which I've yeah. done before our interview. But there's a <laughs> French writer, philosopher. Feel free to to drop the name in now, sir. And who uh, um, says that fact will will merge into fiction and they will have this hyper real state, which is seems incredibly apropos for now. So I've set you up. Um, why don't sure. you tell us about your uh, creative <clears throat> mindset and how um, you you launched writing? Only Americans were burning hell. It wasn't easy. The book was supposed to be something very different than what it ended up as. It was there is an element. There's a big section of the book which is just me trying to write a fantasy novel, and the mm-hmm. idea was to write a fantasy novel, more or less using the style of "I Hate the Internet" because that seemed kind of funny to me, right? Mm-hmm. Where fantasy fiction is so based on a certain kind of language that if you stuck it into like the dead affect of I hate the internet, something about that contrast would be inherently funny. I did a first draft that was just entirely that, and Mm. it was a total failure. It just didn't work at all. And then as I was doing that, I started to realize that it just felt like I was constantly being interrupted by things in my own life or Trump in particular. Um, it, it will have that effect on you. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the, this is the Trump effect, right? Mm. Everything has become an interruption mm. in, and like people are having a really hard time concentrating on anything. And it's just like, it's really hard to concentrate if the president is on Twitter saying he's a genius, it just is, you know, like you can't, (laughs) you can't expect people not to be in a state of constant distraction. So it occurred to me that that could sort of be incorporated into the book. And that once, when you were starting to do that, then you could kind of incorporate anything And then a little like with I Hate the Internet, which was not written with the intention of sounding like the internet, um, Mm -hmm. but which accidentally ended up sounding like the internet. Like it started to take this shape with only Americans, where it's like 
this actually is starting to feel a little bit like an attempt at capturing the experience of being alive in Trump world in 2019, where, or 20-whatever it was when I was 2018. The book is really an attempt to see if fiction can encompass a moment where reality has become more fictive than fiction itself could hope to be, Mm -hmm. right? If you took any copy of the New York Times from the last three weeks and you brought it back in time 70 years ago and showed it to someone, and I mean, you know, there's some stuff they wouldn't be able to understand because it's just about businesses or technology that didn't Mm -hmm. exist. But if you showed them we're able to sort of give them the gist of all of the major stories on the front page of that paper. No one would believe that that could be real. It's so crazy, but we're so we've become so acclimated to it because it's been a relatively slow process building up to Trump's election. I I, I think, I think you're being generous, Jared, over the time span. I think if you went 15 years, I'd even go to say 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Say there is no way that, um, yeah. number one, this buffoonish character would be elected. And, right. uh, and then number two, that he would be able to get away with what he's getting, getting away with. Somebody yeah. with very clearly manifest mental health issues, uh, yeah. a lack of intellect, a lack of empathy, a lack of concern for his fellow humanity. It makes you hanker back for the good old days of George W. Bush. You know, at least that was a president who kind of felt like a human being, whether you agreed with his policies. Well, or not. I mean, this is, this is the really perverse, this is the perversity of Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is like, I understand that feeling and I know that feeling mm-hmm. where you do sort of become nostalgic for this previous thing. But it's like, it's really complicated because Trump is terrible. And this is not me about to say anything nice about Trump. Mm-hmm. But Sounds like you are when you say but. I feel like I feel like Trump is so polarized that it that it's really difficult to say anything about him mm-hmm. which isn't totally negative without people thinking that you're revealing yourself as a crypto fascist. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, if I'm gonna reveal myself as a crypto fascist, it's gonna be for something better than saying something not terrible about Trump. Right. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to go full bore on that when it happens. But for the time being, there is a certain ineptitude to Trump, which is a, which is a kind of saving grace. Very, very terrible things are happening. The plan is to continue to do very terrible things mm-hmm. he, because he has alienated anyone who's competent from like his immediate circle. And if he even has an immediate circle, right? Like at this point, it seems like there's one guy yelling in the White House. Um, (laughs) It's funny because he's horrible. The effect is horrible. The policies are horrible. But George Bush is responsible for like a million dead Iraqis, Mm -hmm. right? It asks a question about what we expect from our leaders, 
right? Which is like, if Trump were not calling women fat pigs on Twitter, mm-hmm. what would the entire way that we think about him be? I don't know. It's really strange. It's like, because I feel it too. I have the exact same feeling where it's like, God, George Bush was better than this. Trump didn't kill a million Iraqis directly or indirectly, which no, Bush well, did. Well, there are a few positives to the tenure of Trump, and I'd say one of yeah. them is to ignite um, left of center politics is to shake people out of their complacency. You know, ultimately, these are going to be historical political uh, benefits that come out of the uh, presidency of Trump. But but you but you made me think. You know, your book um, has a leader, the Queen of uh, Fairyland. That's right. You know, what do you think she says? If, if Trump is having a go at uh, Rosie O'Donnell, corner of fat pig, um, is trying to get, is being very disparaging about the four congresswomen of colour. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the Queen of the Fairyland saying about men, considering that they've all been killed or banished uh, from, from Fairy Island? But, you know, what would be her take? Is she actually a good leader? Does she have the rhetoric and the language that conveys her queenship across her island? Uh, no. No, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about this character, which I repurposed mm-hmm. from a piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction. Um, Cause I didn't, <clears throat> when I was doing the book, mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to invent characters because it seemed really hard. Um, even though I did invent characters, but I didn't want to invent a scenario. So I dug up this really strange book that was published in 1598 about King Arthur's bastard son. And mm-hmm. there's an, there's an interlude in that where he goes to um, an island called Fairyland where the women on Fairyland have killed or banished all of the men. And then there's a bunch of stuff that happens. But the, the idea of this was funny enough to me that I was like, well, yeah, what if these people from Fairyland just had to come to Los Angeles in Trump's America? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, one of the reasons why I really liked choosing that idea was like, as presented in Richard Johnson's Tom Lincoln, which is the book that I, mm-hmm. I took this from, the rule is entirely based on force. It's so old, the source material, that it's like it predates anything like Enlightenment thought. It predates anything like... I mean, it almost predates capitalism. It doesn't quite, but it's, Mm. you know, it's very contemporary with the development of capitalism. And so it's just like, it's just naked force. And it also seemed like a parallel to Wonder Woman, because it is the Wonder Woman story, right? It's a bunch Mm -hmm. of women on an island. And I found Wonder Woman when it came out, the film, I found the rhetoric around that really disturbing for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, she has nothing to say about the future other than the possibility that the future will be ruled by brute force, which I think isn't entirely 
unlikely. You have this construct of using the island as your allegory for the, for for modern America for the world, <clears throat> and then crashing into it comes what periodically. What do you mean? I'm sorry. And, but then you make these direct comparisons, don't you? And and one with your commentary on America now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it is a fantasy novel. I think it mm-hmm. mostly functions mostly functions as a fantasy novel, but not, not political critique. Well, but that's the thing. The point of it is not a fantasy novel, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, it's the the hangers that you put the clothes on, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's just a way of thinking about how do you write about America in 2019 with any hope without being without falling into the same places that everyone falls into when they write about it right you know like one of the things that's true mm. is that there is this really insane tendency right now to view america or to interpret america i would say through the lens of science fiction and fantasy media properties Mm -hmm. you know like every time marvel releases a film how many articles get written or not even marvel like joker just came out right Mm -hmm. how many articles leading up to the release of that film were about violence in america incels all of these qualities and i personally find it completely insane that we do this because when I see, whenever I see one of those articles, I just see like a PR person laughing. And with Joker in particular, you could tell that Warner Brothers probably was freaked out at first by this like idea that, oh my God, are people going to be violent at the film? And then realized this is the greatest publicity imaginable because it was mm-hmm. just the story leading into it. But I think it it really has become a dominant trend in the country, right? Which is, for whatever reason, supernatural beings are viewed as the vessels in which we can place and examine the goings-on in our society. And I find it completely insane. And it seemed to me like if giant major corporations can do this, Maybe I can too, you know. So at the start of our chat, I tried to get out of you. Well, after the, after we talked about Little Venice and Paddington Bear, mm. uh, and I told a somewhat slightly laboured story about Airbnb, who probably do have a shit on their hands, just like Orson. Um, well, there's, no, <laughs> there's no probably about it. <laughs> absolutely, sure. They absolutely do. I need to try and get at what you like. Because I'm not saying that you're a contrarian, but uh, as, I, as I said before, and, and you, you smiled, so I, I, I do thank you for that. When I said that you're an equal opportunities disliker uh, of just about just about everything and, and everyone, so I'm sure you have family and friends that you hold close to your bosom. But what bits of the world of culture of media? Um, are you less cynical about if you don't actually necessarily? Give them a big cuddle. 
I still think there's really interesting stuff happening in publishing. I mean, mm-hmm. not major publishing. I, mm-hmm. That seems to be a wasteland where occasionally one right thing will be found. But there's a lot of independent publishing. There's a lot of writers that are still doing good work. I don't know why I said still, are just flat out doing good work. Mm-hmm. But it's a difficult thing, I think. Do you, do you think with, with so much media, right? so many outlets, you know, mm-hmm. there's idiots like me who can't write, who are doing podcasts. Then you've got people who can write long form, short form. Then you've got journalists, you've got mm-hmm. vloggers, you've got, you know, cable TV, traditional mainstream, blah, 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 books, you know, whatever. That it's kind of hard if you have like a thousand voices, a, a thousand flowers of different mm-hmm. platforms, it's harder to have a unique voice, to have a take on something which is truly, truly unique. Um, no, I think it's always been hard, actually. Mm-hmm. I think it's just amplified in in the moment. I mean, I think if people actually say what they believe no one no two people tend to believe the same thing right mm-hmm. everyone believes with nuance and everyone thinks about things with nuance that are influenced by their own experience or their own quirk of genetics but i think one of the things the internet has not been very good about is i mean i think there are two things that work in it one is that it's a fear based culture Right. Like the internet now has evolved into, and I think the fear is actually really overblown, but you can just feel if you have conversations with people that they are much less open than they used to be on the internet, even 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago, because everyone is worried about being canceled which i find absurd for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. one is like everyone who's ever talked to me about being canceled has no hopes in hell of ever being canceled because no one cares about them and i don't <laughs> mean it in a mean way it's just like you know like my friends who have a normal job no one's going to try to cancel you if you say something wrong because no one cares if if you're Cormac McCarthy, maybe someone might try to cancel you, but that's because people care. But then I think the second thing too is like the internet is, if you're seeing anything except really independent writing or podcasting, it's really advertising dependent, right? Mm -hmm. And in that advertising, there is a pressure to write in a certain way or write about things in a certain way, because if you don't, the advertisers could get upset or the users could tell the advertisers that they're upset. And so I think it really has created a kind of inadvertent monoculture on the internet or several overlapping monocultures is probably the better way to describe it. You know, and maybe we talk in it, slight cross purposes but sure and, and, here, and here's my answer to that that i think i don't think there's a monoculture there is a set of standards and norms which are online 
which most people most of the time adhere to. That arguably mm. is the monoculture. But because the internet has delivered at least a promise of you as a consumer of media, that you have the ability to immerse yourself completely in what exactly your peccadillo is to the nth degree, <laughs> that we have the breakdown of the commons. So I like Formula One. I don't love it, but I like it a lot. I can consume 24 hours a day of Formula One media if I so choose to. Now, that ultimately will not make me into an angry and vengeful uh, citizen, but it's probably not doing me any good in terms of me being an informed member of society with, with other, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know what else is going on in the world. Whereas before we had uh, cable TV, let alone the internet, you know, there are only so many channels mm-hmm. producing so much stuff. There are only so many periodicals and it forced you to consume the messages that were delivered you could say, by by the system, by the patriarchy, by capitalism, by whatever. But we all had an idea that we were sitting down and consuming kind of the similar stuff or at least watching the news at the same time. Whereas now, if I want to just consume right-wing news, and this then makes me into a bad citizen or even left-wing news solely, mm-hmm. we have a very skewed view. So... I don't quite believe that there is a monoculture on online. I believe there are different parallel cultures, and that is exacerbating the problem that we have in society in the Western world, where people can take their news from Facebook or from WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. You know, m- my mother is forever forwarding on nonsense that people have <laughs> sent to her, and you say, "Mom, you know this is just not true," but because. Right. She is a woman of a different generation and uh, she sees the internet as media, as curated media, which has a force. So you say, well, I got it off the internet, son. It must be Tris's mom. Anyone can put any old crap up there. These people are not coming to eat your grandchildren. They're not. Yeah. Anyway, that was um, a bit of a a monologue from me. And I've got to remember that I'm interviewing you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But I, I, I respectfully disagree, sir. Uh, you could be right. I mean, I'm nothing if not, like I said, nothing if not suspicious of my own uh, positions and opinions. Um... I take your point. I think you're right to a degree, which is, but I don't know, really, actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this so definitively. I would say it is my suspicion Mm -hmm. that the way that most people interact with the internet, it does not exist in in so much of a niche uh, as like your hypothetical example of someone who just consumes formula one 24 hours a day i think they're actually not, is. not so hypothetical that's literally me 
is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little, but like I, I every day I'm watching something, and 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 it amazes me that this sport, which is we talk about elites, that is an elitist sport, you know. Yeah. Invariably, you've got to be the son of a millionaire or at least somebody incredibly wealthy to be able to break into that sport. Not that you don't have talent to get right. there, but your your talent being fueled by bucket loads of cash. I'm so, gonna dis- I'm gonna display my ignorance of Formula One because I didn't really know anything about it whatsoever. But then I was watching David Letterman's Netflix show. Uh, he interviews the the British guy whose name I can't remember. Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton, yeah. And that was interesting because I did not actually realize there was such a class divide in racing until... Well, to call it a class divide, it, it, uh-huh. y- you're wrong, right? There is one working class... Right, half black kid, right, and the rest, <laughs> the rest of the one percent. Mm. Don't, don't kid yourself. There's a class yeah. divide. One person yeah, yeah. does not make a no. class divide. He is yeah. he's such an exception. To be fair to Lewis Hamilton, I'm trying to think of the current roster of Formula One drivers. I think there's a guy called Esteban Ocon, who is not actually racing this year. He's got working class parents, so there's like mm. two two out of twenty. Everybody right. else has come with a silver spoon in there. So it's basically like publishing then, right? <laughs> like American publishing is if you were writing literary fiction or mm-hmm. serious writing, it has winnowed in the last couple of decades to a point where I fundamentally do not believe that a poor person could get, could, even if a poor person wrote, the very best literary novel of the last 20 or 30 years. I do not believe that person could get that book published. They might be able to publish it themselves. They might be able to get a small press involved, Mm -hmm. but published in the way that we traditionally have thought about publishing, which is like, oh, Penguin puts out your book or Simon and Schuster or any of these storied presses that really do constitute about 95% of American publishing, there is literally no way that a poor person or even a working class person, unless they had gone into unbelievable amounts of debt with getting an MFA and had displayed an incredible ability at social fluidity could possibly get a literary novel published in 2020. It's just totally impossible at this you point. Know, you know, I don't know too much about publishing, but you obviously do. You've had uh, three books, two of them to massive critical acclaim and with sales. Second one, in your own words, not so much. Even that, yeah, splendid. abject failure, as I think. The- <laughs> but I go to conferences um, about podcasts. I was going to say all the time. That's a gross exaggeration. Twice a year, I do mm-hmm. do one do one of my own. And you always get some utopian saying, this is so wonderful that anyone anywhere can do a podcast and it can be a success. Mm-hmm. And invariably that person works for uh, some kind of media company. And and I say, but wait on a minute, uh, Serial 
was a great podcast. Incredibly entertaining, informative, thought-provoking. Is it by accident that the people behind it all worked for a media company? Right. And came through a very traditional route. Right. That if somebody did the equivalent of serial and they hadn't gone to, hadn't worked for an NPR station mm-hmm. or NBC or CBS or just whatever, but they happened to live in Jacksonville and they put together their local version of serial, they don't have the network connections, they don't have the uh, social fluidity to use uh, one of your lines which you used uh, a few minutes ago to be able to put their their product their work in front of key influencers curators people mm-hmm. who will say hey this is great they just don't have that intellectual capital to be able or right. social economic capital to be able to do that so they can beaver away all they want in uh, jonesville idaho if a certain mm-hmm. place exists creating work which has as much worth but if you happen to produce a podcast in new york and just happen to have a few friends that are journalists working in various magazines uh, and online publications of real worth in terms of the amount of eyeballs they get and you just happen to maybe have um, got somebody who can edit it for you who's worked on uh, the uh, the new york times uh, the daily podcast mm-hmm. ah, you know it doesn't mean you can have a hit but your chances right. are exactly the same. I think we were out of our first flush of the, the utopian dream of the internet. I think that's just about almost behind us in the rearview mirror. But you still hear people saying, oh, this is this is wonderful in that it's a level playing field. Mm-hmm. It ain't at all. Yeah. That's not to yeah. say that you can't have the odd example that breaks through, but it's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think... The internet is probably a little more open, but it's still incredibly difficult. Mm. You know, like it's it's still really, really challenging to break through. But compared to how sewn up traditional media has become, you know, the odds are better. What that means is like it's probably the odds of being hit by lightning versus the odds of dying in a plane crash. Right. (laughs) I think, I think one is probably better than the other. They're both still very unlikely. It's complicated. I mean, it's a really, really strange moment that we live in because certainly prior to my birth and, and prior to yours post world war two, there really was a moment of surprising social openness, not huge by any means. Right. But like the story of the 1960s as it's told rather than necessarily how it was lived, at least in terms of media is like people who came from backgrounds where even 30 years prior to that would have had no influence on the culture would have no chance of having any influence on the culture suddenly for whatever reason, because there was this prosperity bubble, because there was a kind of social openness driven by a variety of factors. Suddenly those people had like this surprising influence 
and a surprising ability to achieve a certain uh, class mobility. Not everyone by any means, but I think there was much more openness. And I think we sort of live or have lived until very recently in the shadow of that, where certainly in America, right? Like it's the thing that you're force fed from the day you're born is this idea that you can achieve your dreams, right? And it's like, it's not impossible, but it's really unlikely. Um, And I think, you know, and, and I say this as someone who actually did achieve pretty much every goal that I had for myself. And it just turned out I, I didn't shoot high enough because it kind of left me depressed. <laughs> so Jared, if yeah. you've achieved every goal that you set yourself, is it yeah. fairly safe to say that you've met the cash horizon, you know, and no. you're about no. to transform into a, you're not about to transform into a supernatural. Well, being no, well, you know, I mean, one of the things about it is I've never been motivated by money and I actually probably should, figure out how to be motivated by money because i'm terrible with it off of i hate the internet i made a substantial amount of money but not anything i made enough money to live professionally as a writer for a couple of years Mm -hmm. i did not make enough money to generate wealth which is a huge difference right like Every, anyone can have cash. Not everyone can have wealth mm-hmm. that self-sustains. So I, there were things I could have done that in that moment probably would have gotten me closer to generating wealth. Um, I didn't do them because, like I said, I'm really terrible with money. But you know, for about 10 years prior to that book coming out, I had decided, okay, what I want to do with my life is I want to be a professional writer and I want to be a successful writer. Mm. Um, It took about eight years until I got to a point where I had an indisputable success, right? Where I had done other small things before I hate the internet and maybe one or two of those things had generated something but it but i hate the internet was really like a moment of unusual success and i would say within about a year of it coming out maybe even eight months of it coming out pretty much i had lived that american story of like every dream i could possibly have has been met and one of those was definitely going to a sex club in a suburban strip mall was definitely uh, one of those. But... I, I wish that were one. I wish that's what, <laughs> I, you know, like, like I said, I didn't dream big enough as part of, <laughs> as part of it. Um, no, but it's just like, I would like to be a successful writer. I would like mm-hmm. to have international publication. I would like to have the work allow me to travel. I would like to see, the mechanisms of how all of this stuff works. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did, you know, like I, I was touring for, I hate the internet, not consistently, but on and off for until December of last year for a book that came out in 
February of 2016. And when I did that, the last thing I did for it was I, my Italian publishers brought me to Rome. And then it was just like this incredibly weird scene of being chauffeured around Rome in this BMW SUV war machine. And it's like, how many writers get that? Very, very few. Or like basically everything that is good that can happen to you as a writer did happen to me. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I hated all of it. I didn't hate all of it. That's too strong. But it turned out to be surprisingly hollow. So that was a hollow experience, not as fulfilling as coming onto one of my podcasts as obviously been. And now, stuff, is, stuff like this is better, you know, genuinely. Oh, stop it, sir. But uh, when you say that you didn't aim high enough, you aimed high enough when, when you when there was opportunity to come onto this show. And it's kind of at this point that I have to start to wrap up. So somewhat of a okay. slightly clumsy host way of of, uh, kind of winding this down now so and here's like a typical kind of author question which was harder to write the start or the end and 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 why definitely the end when the start i just sort of it just came out right or at least Mm -hmm. the, the the beginning of the first draft and that was really easy the end you know, it sounds funny to say this, but it was the last thing that was written for the book, which you would think would be the case, but wasn't, or almost wasn't. Like when Serpent's Tale agreed to publish this book in the UK, they very generously agreed to do it before it had an ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like this process of faith on their part. Eventually, we would figure out where this thing should land but it really got up to the wire where i think i finally figured out what the end should be maybe a month before they had to print the book which in publishing is usually not how it happens you know usually that thing is sort of encased in in stone months in advance so the end was really really hard i think it gets where it needs to so well, well, it definitely does, and you've got to where you need to be, uh, which is uh, not only being driven around Rome in uh, BMW SUV like tanks, but also appearing on podcasts and in imprint. And you've made somewhat of a splash in terms of the literary world, and you've made people think uh, w- with all of your novels, whether they've sold three hundred copies or substantially more. So, Jared, actually, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. Um, I, I presume, even though uh, you have somewhat of a love-hate hate relationship with the internet, you're on Twitter. That you? No, I'm not. Oh wow. Okay. So much for me and my research. No, I have I have a Twitter account, but I haven't. I only tweeted like four times in 2010. I kind of adore that thing's existence now because it seems like some kind of principled stance, but mm-hmm. actually it was just laziness. Well, you, you have to at least have a website. So why don't you spell out the URL of your website, sir? So um, the good listeners of my podcast. Can... I, I don't, I don't have a personal website. You can good go heavens. to the, good you, heavens, go to... You, you, you do know that you need to exist on some level in the digital age. 
But you know what? I will tell you very quickly because uh-huh. we are wrapping up. Mm-hmm. The theory that I have is that I get partly I don't want to do it because I don't want to swim in that shit. But mm-hmm. secondly, I think there is a kind of cachet to being the writer who refuses to engage. Um, there are so many writers that just use Twitter and social media and all of this stuff as a promotional tool. Um, and it becomes a kind of wall of noise, right? Where like every writer has a mailing list, every writer has Twitter, every writer is posting pictures of their new book on Instagram. Um, I am not convinced that is good for sales. I think it's it's really good if you're Neil Gaiman, but if you are a relatively mid-list obscurity, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it helps. I think it just sort of makes you seem like you're part of the noise, and I suspect it probably actually hurts sales if you're doing anything remotely unique. So the theory I have, which if I die in the gutter, you can follow up and laugh at me, (laughs) is that by virtue of being a writer who refuses to engage, there's a kind of building cachet off of that. And it controls where something anyway. But you can go to the website of my publisher, which Mm is www.weheardyoulikebooks.com. And then we type in Gerard. Kobeck and we'll bump into your your wonderful tome sir and sure. of course the other book retailer online no doubt does a good line in uh, yeah. in your books also Gerard listen I really enjoyed our chat me too you know you know I always love it when I, I set out with questions I don't ask not one of them you know, <laughs> then you know and if you can manage to spin out an hour plus right. of conversation without asking one question that you've had pre-planned. You know, it's been yeah. a pretty good and organic and authentic conversation. So uh, yeah. again, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. What are you doing for the rest of your day? Uh, I have to do another podcast later. Won't be as good as this. Uh, probably not. It'll definitely be longer. So longer? Will... Yeah, they want to record two episodes at once, mm-hmm. which I don't know if it's the best idea, but I'll do it. We'll see how it goes. Well, you, now you have to tell me what, what the podcast is so I can make sure. I, I tell people that compare and contrast my interview with theirs. So go on. So what, what's the podcast? I think it's called Losing Our Religion. It's a podcast hosted by this guy who's pretty young. I think he's about 40, but young for what he used to do, mm-hmm. which was be a pastor in a mega church, And he, I guess woke up one day and realized that he was some kind of spiritual criminal and renounced all of it. Yeah. And a friend of mine hooked me up with him because he's friends with him and I, and he was seemed interested in doing it. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll promote the book. I mean, it should be really interesting because I listened, I listened to another episode or I Mm -hmm. listened to an episode rather of that show. And it's like, you can hear the damage in that guy's voice. You know, you can hear that he was really, really affected either by what he did as a mega pastor or Mm. affected by the realization that he had to stop, 
you know, or maybe both. So should be interesting. Well, you know what? Now you've somewhat humbled me because my whole shtick was going to be, of course, my my podcast is better than theirs, but he's got a much more compelling backstory. So all of a sudden it was like... Everybody well, is now logged off this and is furiously downloading his. And, and the, I, I'm well, you, can cut, you can cut this part out. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. Let, let's keep it real. Let's keep it real. Sure. And dare I say it, if he's had this uh, Saul on the road to Damascus kind of conversion, pun completely intended, when it comes to the some of the pernicious evils that... Um, so, some aspects of religion can 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 throw at us as as human beings and individuals. You know, his voice needs to be heard. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Losing my religion, folks. That's the podcast where you can compare and contrast. Jarrett speaking to me, and and Mister Losing My Religion. All right, folks. <laughs> that, that that's us. That's uh, intelligent speech. It's done. There you go. Next uh, next time there'll be somebody else. Cool. I'll hit stop. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.